Hey sis! From coast to coast, we're bridging the gap between the cisgender and transgender community, creating meaningful dialogue and space to learn and grow. Join us as we connect with our community, break down tough conversations, and get comfortable being better humans. I would say in the queer space, and for me as a Black gay man, something extremely positive that came out of it for me personally was, as Cynthia had said, I was shocked with the number of cis, hetero, Black men in particular who called me of their own volition to say, hey, have you seen this? Can I have a chat with you about, you know, like I, I, I'm not even familiar, I'm not familiar with trans issues. I'm not familiar with queer issues. I, can we talk about this? Like I, I'd like to learn more. And I was seeing what he was saying. And the intersections of identity are at the heart of what we do at Simply Good Form. And this month in Nova Scotia, it's African Heritage Month. And we're celebrating QT BIPOC Canadians, queer, trans, Black people of color. And we're excited to be talking with Jefferson Darrell about what inspires them, a force in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Jefferson Darrell is more than an award-winning communicator. He is a change maker. In 2021, his marketing and communications consultancy, Breakfast Culture, was awarded LGBT Plus Business Advocate of the Year. And with only a few weeks into 2022, they've already been nominated as a finalist in the upcoming Social Impact Awards. Welcome to the podcast, Jefferson. Thank you very much, Cynthia. Wow, I need to hire you as my hype person. <laughs> It's so exciting. You're on she does a good job. We're really excited about that award. Um, it's, I hate to say it this way, but it's an American award. They like us. They really like us. Um, we're nominated in three different categories in Best Health and Public Awareness Campaign, which is the one we really want to win. Um, we're also nominated um, Best Campaign by a Black-owned business and Best Campaign by an LGBTQ-plus-owned business as well. This was all for um, one of our clients is the Ontario AIDS Network. And we did a really interesting project with them after the racial awakening of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd. So the Ontario AIDS Network represents over 45 different um, ASOs, so AIDS services organizations across Ontario. And your listeners may or may not be aware, um, when you look at the data, and when you look at the actual population of Black people, so the ACB communities, African, Caribbean, and Black, and then when you look at the populations of the Indigenous communities, Unfortunately, um, HIV and AIDS actually over indexes within those communities when you it, do, it doesn't match the actual population. Why is that? So ultimately, ultimately what the OAM wanted to do and their executive director, Shannon Ryan, um, he said, let's have a discussion about HIV work, anti-black racism work, anti-indigenous racism work, and the effects of white supremacy on our sector. And so they brought together five different speakers. I was one of them. And we talked about this type of work. And ultimately, we wanted to explore how HIV work, AIDS work, is anti-oppression work, is anti-Black racism work, is anti-Indigenous work. And what was interesting about the project was um, they actually hired Breakfast Culture to do an audit of the sector um, around anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism. We went in with our five-phase proven process. And to Shannon's credit, it's like, this is great, but let's take a step back and start a conversation first. And we're like, oh, okay, which was a bit different from what we normally, how we normally approach these things. And um, again, the whole goal of this really was to take a look at the sector itself. 
So they had a subscription list of about 60 people. There was executive directors, um, board chairs uh, within the sector, and about something like 500 to 600 staff within the sector. And their success rate meant, okay, if this newsletter, it was a repository, it was a newsletter, that led to a bunch of database, um, a very robust database of different resources, best practices of anti-black racism, anti-indigenous racism throughout the world, um, especially as it relates to HIV AIDS work. Um, we had a speaker each, we, um, a series of about five different speakers talking about different aspects of anti-oppression work. If you were not able to make it, they had a podcast um, by, um, shout out to Kondwani Masai with 54 Lights, um, wonderful podcast about the 54 different countries um, on the continent of Africa and the peoples from those countries and the wonderful work that they're doing. So he basically sum summarized what was discussed in each speaker session for people who weren't able to make it. So success for us was, hey, if the 60 subscription list initially went to about, I don't know, got shared with 500 to 600 people, we reached the sector, we're happy. It got shared with over 6,500 people, like over 6,000%. Um, podcasts had similar numbers. 70% of the shares were beyond Canada. We knew Canada would be, um, you know, obviously most of them are in Ontario. 20% got shared in the United States. 5% got shared globally. So we were actually quite surprised with the results. Again, from a marketing lens, you know, 6,000 isn't yes, huge. But right? Considering success was 600, 6,000 is huge. Right. Um, yeah, that's yeah so we're quite proud of that work. Um, we definitely focused on a lot of intersectionality as well, um, various, you know, with the speakers um, from different gender identities, um, cis versus trans, for example, and just how, again, you layer on that intersectionality and it's the issues, frankly, just double, triple, quadruple. The intersections are so important because, um, you know, and getting these numbers out there because statistically, uh, StatsCan hasn't even been capturing information about trans people and non-binary people. I think that just started in 2021, um, started rolling out. So, right, until you have the numbers, you can't really effectively implement great policies of change without that support. But um, that's good. I just want to back it up just a little bit really quickly uh, to Jefferson. If you can just tell us um, about, for listeners out there who don't know, where you call home and, uh, and where you grew up. So I call Toronto home. Um, I grew up in Toronto as well. So my background, uh, for the Bermudians and the audience, my parents were originally from the um, very small island of Bermuda or Arctic archipelago of Bermuda, if you will. Um, I call myself a maple onion. <laughs> uh, maple being the Canadian part of me. Um, there's something called Bermuda onions. That's the Bermudian part of me. So I'm a maple onion from that standpoint. Um, yeah, I grew up in Toronto. Still live here. Um, to get a little personal, 20 years ago, my niece is now 20. 20 years ago, I actually was looking to leave the city. I was looking to leave Canada because I just found Canada, from a marketing lens especially, I found it very small in terms of what we're doing and a lot more interesting work was at that time was being done um, in Europe. I was actually looking at um, companies in Amsterdam, uh, London, the UK, uh, a few places in the States. But then my niece was born or my sister announced her pregnancy rather and I was, hmm, I really want to stay and help her out. She's a single mom and, you know, get to know my niece and watch her grow up and now she's like, you know, incredible young woman uh, in her second year of biomedical engineering out in UVic. So part of me is like, huh, what's keeping me in Toronto now, aside from COVID? So who knows, I could look at moving again, but I'm going to wait till COVID's over for that. But yeah, grew up in Toronto, born and raised, proud of that. 
So was it around that time that you coined the the organization, the breakfast culture, or what kind of motivated that? So one could argue that breakfast culture actually started in its earlier form in 20, um, no, actually 20 years ago, Jefferson Dale and Associates. In a nutshell, we talked about Toronto. Toronto is not a cheap city to live in. And I actually founded JDA, Jefferson Dale and Associates, to augment my income. Um, from a PR standpoint. So it was basically a little PR agency. I had a couple of clients um, and it would help augment my income from my full-time job. That said, about 10 years ago, I started on my own organizational or corporate diversity and inclusion journey, if you will, um, more from a racial lens to begin with. And that's when I started, um, that's when I founded Breakfast Culture, actually. So I rebranded JDA to Breakfast Culture to start doing work around um, sort of Jedi work, uh, justice, equity, decolonization, inclusion. I love that. I was actually going to ask you about your Jedi consultancy and how you had coined that. So yeah, justice. Equity. I have not coined that term for the record. I no. <laughs> no, I just referenced it as your boutique consultants, Jedi consultancy. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, I think, important to have the decolonization piece in, in there. It fits well. <laughs> the force. I, uh, I have to ask what, uh, what inspired the name? So that's an interesting story. There is a business consultant by the name of Peter Drucker. Uh, allegedly, his famous quote or infamous quote, if you will, or famous, would, was culture eats strategy for breakfast. Second part of that quote is culture eats technology for lunch. So reason where it comes from is so many, again, at Breakfast Culture, we focus on organizational diversity and inclusion journeys versus individual. That said, as um, an organization starts that journey, individuals within that organization are going to go on their own journeys, and that's just going to happen organically. So, as you both know, how much how much do companies spend on consultancies like Breakfast Culture and other organizations? Um, actually, like Simply Good Form as well, and put in these really great strategic plans. And we both do amazing work, and we come you know come at it with an amazing work and with a very open lens. But then, if the culture within the organization is out of whack. This good work we're doing is just not going to be see, received very well. So that's where that um, breakfast culture comes from. And it's funny because I tweeted that out at one point and the Peter Drucker Foundation actually reached out to me to say, hey, quite honored that we were an inspiration for your name, Peter Drucker. Just so you know, though, he actually never made that quote. Oh. He's often misquoted around that. So I actually adjusted my um, messaging to be like often attributed to. Um, I still think it works, though, so I really like it. Um, hence breakfast culture. I wonder where it originally came from then. Somebody's got to. Well, it did come through Peter Drucker, apparently, yes. but I think, I suspect, you know how these it's things working, work. Ad person. A paraphrase, and it got paraphrased, and it went, that's how these things happen, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that resonates because it's like what you... Um, what you're referring to, if, if if you don't have the culture and when you're doing the training, if you don't have that, um, if you can't resonate that intentional piece, then something gets lost. Like, for example, I was in um, a very popular international uh, box store this week that has a bright blue color on the outside and a big yellow logo that a lot of people might know for their furniture. And um, they're they're very, um, you know, LGBTQ plus friendly. And we were in the checkout and one of the staff had pronouns. Uh, badge on their name and my friend Lisa who I was with who's all over this went right up to the person was like oh my god that's great you got your pronoun you got a pronoun thing is that new and you know Cindy look over here and the person smiled and said oh 
yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just, we're wearing them because, you know, I just, we want to, I want to be inclusive of those people. <laughs> and I thought, oh, the message got lost. It's like, why can't you just own it? And so it was kind of like, they got the training, they had the intention, right? But she was almost, there was that embarrassment piece of that. It's not me, but I'm wearing it for everybody. And it's, it, so there was definitely that big piece that was lost in in pushing that kind of initiative out to the overall culture of the company. Missed opportunity. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it's to your point, Cynthia does speak to individuals. I, I, I suspect not everyone would have that viewpoint. And again, I'm not, what's the word for, um, forgiving them per se. Um, I always like to say we are all on our own journeys. That's one, that's a hard lesson I had to learn. Um, we're not all at that same level. We're all starting to get there. Um, and no shame. It's just sometimes in that in that um, instant, you don't know how to own it or you don't know how to respond. So maybe they couldn't tell, were we making fun? Were we, where are we at? Are we inclusive? And so, you know, if you're going to ask your employees to wear pronoun tags, you need to help them understand the why and why right. it's important so that they can pass that back. So by no fault of that person, you just need to empower the words for sure within the expression. So well, interesting you say that. I remember I used to... I worked at a um, large cultural organization at one point. And going back to how I think Isaac had asked me how um, I started all of this. So when I was advocating from a racial lens, it was interesting um, at this organization we had, um, it was very public. Um, we had an exhibit, I think it was around superheroes. I remember looking at it and it's like, ooh, pick your favorite superhero. And it was like, Superman, Batman. Let's just jump to, they all ended with man except for Wonder Woman, was the only female option. They're all white, all cis, the whole bit. And then when it came down, another question was, what was your um, gender identity? I was like, male, female. And I'm like, um, we're missing something, aren't we? And again, I'm not non-binary or whatever, but um, I think I can share this part. Um, the organization was an agency of the government of Ontario. And I know that the government of Ontario actually does recognize um, you can have um, please excuse me if I'm getting the terms incorrect here. I believe it's intersex they use um, on your driver's license, on your birth certificate. And the, not, the point of the story is they recognize non-binary. And so I'm thinking, you know what, the government, and again, if you understand government, I mean, we have to follow the rules. And it was interesting. So I actually did bring that up. And what was fascinating, though, whether we should have done it on the floor or not, I was chatting with the manager who was in charge of this exhibition. And I just pointed out, hey, here are a few things we might want to adjust. And we, we can adjust it. Like Black Panther was just about to come out. I'm like, you can throw on Black Panther. This is before Shang-Chi or what have you. At least, like, let's have a racialized hero in there as well. And I remember, the unfortunately, the person who was um, in charge of the exhibit, they were saying, well, we've got the Hulk. And I'm like, seriously, that's your response? But then I also brought up the issue of under gender. It's like we only offer the two. Um, we should have a third option. And what really struck me, again, this was um, a large cultural institution. One of the visitors came up and overheard. Again, it wasn't a heated discussion. I was just pointing it out. And, you know, and frankly, the manager was very receptive. It's like, you know what? You're right. I hadn't thought about it. Let's get on that and fix it. And one of the um, people who was actually just there as a visitor to the center came up to us and said, you know what? I was thinking that. I'm non-binary. And I overheard your discussion. And just so you know, thank you. Because, yeah, I saw that. And... 
from my perspective, I did not feel included. And you're right. Like the government does recognize this and you should have it in there. So if you need some extra fodder, here you go. And I was actually quite impressed with the way um, the response personally was. And so then a couple days later, intersex was added. I mean, we use government terms on that front. So this was quite a few years ago. Yeah. That was well, sort of my first introduction into non-binary. Yeah. Yeah. As a, as a trans person myself, I consider progress to be any type of progress, you know, yeah. on, on all fronts, any, any strive for inclusion or diversity of any type, I think is, I, I think is definitely something to celebrate. Um, but I think, uh, to your point exactly that, um, sometimes it can be really hard for people who are part of those communities to advocate for themselves, especially in the moment, because it can be not only dangerous for them, it can be scary. Um, so sometimes it's nice to have, allies who are willing to strike that conversation and bring it up and then kind of really exactly. when, when necessary. So when it comes to homophobia and the intersections of being black and a member of the LGBTQ2 plus community, uh, Jefferson, you've, you've used the term, uh, well, haven't coined the term, but you've used the term homo noir, which I think is um, really particularly interesting because you can't talk about diversity and inclusion without talking about intersectionality. Um, in your experience, uh, would you say this term is becoming more recognized um, when talking about homophobia as it relates to being Black? Um, short answer, I would say is no, frankly. Um, Number one, I, I, I don't claim to have coined the term as you had you know, astutely pointed out, thank you. Um, quick, quick, quick little story. I was on a um, clubhouse chat once and they were talking about the black experience and the queer experience. What I thought was interesting, the people who were hosting this discussion, one was a straight black man and one was a queer white man. And every time they were talking about it, the straight black man's like, well, I can speak from the black experience, can't speak from the queer experience. And the queer white man's, I can speak from the queer experience, can't speak from the black experience. And I was in the audience and I'm like, you know, you can raise your hand in Clubhouse to, hey, I can, I have a black gay man here. I have a perspective. And they didn't bring me up on stage to provide a perspective, which I would call home in a war. It's like, here you have someone. And frankly, Cynthia, I find that's often the case. Like when I'm in black spaces, there's a lot of homophobia. There's a lot of transphobia. I know that, I understand that. Um, it can be challenging. When I'm in queer spaces, there's a lot of racism, especially anti-black racism. And I find that I'm constantly juggling, like again, when I'm in black spaces, I'm the one advocating for queerness. When I'm in queer spaces, I'm the one advocating for race, um, as it were, racial issues. So I did, I found them on Twitter and I tweeted out to them and said, hey, and I, you know, I said, like massage noir, I said, I don't know if there's a term for this. And I just thought to myself, homo noir, and just put it out there. And then, you know, to their credit, someone tweeted me um, at Kenneth Suss, who goes by on Twitter, Annalise Cheating, um, basically just said, hey, I want people to know that I actually started using this term and coined this term in, I forget what year it was. Um, let me see if I have it here. Yeah, yeah, I'd like my fellow queers to know that homo noir is a term I'm coining to express the discrimination of black queers under the current system of oppression. And this was in 2020, August 25th. Um, so that's the earliest I was able to find. I mean, there might be others, I don't know. But that's a term I've been using to sort of describe that intersectionality. And I find that's often almost the case unless I'm in a black queer space, um, which often in Toronto, especially where I'm based, 
it's becoming a bit more prevalent now because we're actually activating more. Um, there's Black Pride that happens here now as well. So there are more opportunities for Black queer spaces, but they're not always around. Well, because when we first talked before we were doing the podcast, so we did talk a little bit about that um, very controversial Netflix um, special by Dave Chappelle. And yeah. um, and it, it speaks so well to what you're explaining right now, um, whereas that, that episode was sort of, it was very divisive. And I don't know whether you had used the word, was it... Um, marginalization olympics or sort oh, of i i the term i use i didn't coin this i say oppression olympics oppression olympics. Yeah. Woman. it was a latin woman in the u.s who coined it i forget how long ago um mm -hmm. one of the reasons why i say oppression olympics i don't like to play oppression olympics because nobody mm -hmm. wins but the oppressor well, right yeah. so like case in point today we are talking about obviously you know based on yeah. We're talking about trans issues, non-binary. So let's focus that. You've invited me to bring in a perspective from an intersectionality lens. Yes, so and absolutely. And and I, I love that what what you said about sort of one of the outcomes from some of the people that that you know or some peers who have maybe have watched that episode um, that maybe had never come to you and talked to you about um, the LGBTQ2 plus piece. Um, yeah. but maybe have talked about Black Lives Matters, are now actually talking to you. It actually started a positive conversation. Well, you talk about, like, a little bit about yeah. that. So first, I'm going to take a quick step back at just Dave Chappelle's work. I mean, as a comedian, personally, I do think he's quite brilliant in the work that he does. As a comedian, as an artist, as I'm sure we're all aware, artists are here to push the envelope. That's what they do. And again, first and foremost, I'm not necessarily defending Dave Chappelle in terms of his comments in that special person, I did find them transphobic. I found them from a very place of ignorance. And frankly, I'd say he admitted that in, in the special when he was talking about it. But I also think a lot of the times, every time he's put out a special, there's been some type of controversy, always. Yeah. Yeah, For me, one of the earlier ones I recall, I don't know if you remember when he did a whole bit on Black Klansmen. So in a nutshell, the Grand Wizard or whatever the title is, the highest Klans person, um, he's a Black man, blind Black man, so he doesn't know that he's Black. And what was kind of fascinating about it was he's coming up with all these ideas to basically, you know, justify white supremacy, put the black, pe black people down, et cetera, et cetera. And they were doing a documentary. It was a mock documentary. It was a little skit he did. And then, you know, the leaders show who he is to this documentary. And like, wait, he's black. Yeah, but he doesn't know he's black. And what I loved about it for me personally, I mean, it's as a younger person at that time, at least, it kind of me demonstrated the silliness of the KKK and of racism and all of that. And frankly, a lot of, and there was a huge controversy amongst the ACB communities, African-Caribbean and Black, where like older generations thought it was insensitive and horrible and you shouldn't be doing this. Whereas younger folks like myself at that time, um, we were like, oh, this is brilliant. And we loved it because it was just very much, yeah, he's poking fun at how silly this is. So it was hugely controversial, interestingly, only amongst Black folks primarily. Like, I don't know if it actually made it into dominant culture. I'm going to be specific when I say dominant culture here, white folks. But where I'm going with this, um, to go back to The Closer, I think it was called, mm -hmm. um, to go back to The Closer, I, I want to take a step back and I want to talk about white supremacy. And when I say that, when I say white supremacy, um, I remember when I went to the White Privilege Conference, um, the first time it came to Canada, um, like official time it came to Canada at Ryerson, there was a really interesting talk I went to keynote. I forget the woman's name. It's a black woman, a lawyer. And it was fascinating because she basically broke down white supremacy 
and how it affects the patriarchy, how it affects heteronormativity, how it affects socioeconomic status. She put up a picture of the founding father, father. she put up the um, Declaration of Independence. She literally went through line by line and said, you know, all, and first, first one was all men are created equal. And then she said, now look at this picture. First and foremost, when they said men, they meant men. They meant cisgendered men. Let's be realistic. Looking at this picture, they meant cisgendered white men. And let's be more specific. They didn't mean men who were sort of, you know, of a certain socioeconomic, they meant men of a certain socioeconomic status, landowners, title holders. So if you weren't part of the aristocracy, if you were a servant still or, you know, worked the land or what have you as a farmer free, but as a farmer, you were still not considered. I mean, and it was just kind of fascinating. And she basically broke down how white supremacy is tied to the patriarchy, heteronormativity, all of that. And one thing I've noticed in a lot of discussions in the DNI space, when we look at other um, aspects of oppression, I again, and here I am going into oppression Olympics, quite frankly, but I just notice as a racialized person, I'm going to be blunt here as a black person, I just find that racism always seems to come secondary. I don't know how else to put it. And when I look at the closer, I mean, he did open with, and this is the fun piece that I find kind of fascinating. He opened and he closed with the very relevant fact that in black communities, there's a lot of homophobia and transphobia. And I was like, you know, thank you for calling that out because he's not wrong. But he also talked about the racism that you often find in LGBTQ plus communities too. And he also ended with that on each end. And what I found was fascinating is the discussion that came out about it, even amongst some black folk, focus solely on the trans issues and the transphobia. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying, from my perspective as a black person, I just feels like the racism, that intersectionality piece, got completely erased. And I find that, and again, that's where I find that often happens, as I said, in black spaces and queer spaces, in this case, I would say in a queer space. And for me, as a black gay man, something extremely positive that came out of it, for me, personally, was, as Cynthia had said, I was shocked with the number of cis, hetero, black men in particular, who called me of their own volition to say, hey, have you seen this? Can I have a chat with you about, you know, like I, I, I'm not even familiar, I'm not familiar with trans issues. I'm not familiar with queer issues. I, can we talk about this? Like I, I'd like to learn more. And I was seeing what he was saying and that kind of blew my mind a little bit. And I felt a little bit more hopeful from an ACB lens, so African Caribbean and black lens. So from my own personal perspective, I found there's a lot of positivity that came from that within the black communities. Because again, not everyone, and I'm, I know I, I can't just generalize, just for me personally, as I said, I had a lot of my black straight male friends call me to open up a dialogue. And it was from a place of, yeah, I watched his special and I've been homophobic. I've been transphobic. I, I don't really understand. Can we talk about that? And they wanted to talk and I was like, oh, and it was coming from an on genuine place of I'm recognizing my pitfalls and I, I just like to learn a little bit more. And that really kind of blew my mind a little bit, quite frankly. And I think that's something for me personally positive that came out of that. And I think that story has been missed um, just to focus on the transphobia personally. Yeah, and I, I would say to one of the hardest parts too in recognizing any bigotry inside yourself is admitting to that fact and recognizing that and seeing behavior that you're that other people are doing you're like that's really crappy behavior and then you look at yourself and you're like i've done those things and i need to learn 
not to do them. So that's a that's a huge step. And I, I would agree. Like, I, I think that's a huge accomplishment for them to do. And I'm happy that they did reach out to you because it's a, it's a conversation that needs to have. And I mean, for me personally, and maybe I should be writing something about this for my Secret Sauce blog now that I say this. But for me personally, that was something, as I said, that was quite positive. It started a dialogue, a much needed dialogue. And I mean, sometimes I wonder, I mean, so I have a, I have a cousin. When I started this journey myself, um, cousin by marriage, very, very vocal about racial issues in particular, I'm just going to commence racial issues. He's very much, we live in a white supremacist society and the whole bit. And I remember back before I was starting to, on my own decolonization journey, I actually said to him, we don't live in a white supremacist society. I mean, there's like, you know, slavery is done and, you know, Jim Crow's. I mean, yeah, there's still, he's like, yeah, it's just taken a different form. It's just taken a different shape. And I was like, huh. And I remember because he said to me, he said, Jefferson, what I love about you is you're asking me questions, but you're not asking me questions to What's the word he used again? Um, I, I'm going to paraphrase here. You're not asking me questions to disprove or challenge. You're asking me questions to learn and understand. And you don't even just take what I'm saying at you know, face value. You go out, you do some reading, you, you know, check this out. I'll recommend a book or whatever. Then you'll come back to me and say, okay, I did this. Let's have a chat about that. And I've come to that realization. It's funny because when he, he actually, I would call him an ally for queer peoples. I do know for a fact that he actually, as a straight man, he he participated in a campaign, an LGBTQ plus campaign um, in Bermuda, um, where my people are from, where my um, family's from. I was born here, but my family's from Bermuda. I think I can share this now. This was quite a few years ago. And he actually ended up leaving the island with his wife and his two young boys because he was actually getting some threats. And I mean, Bermuda, for the most part, is safe from an LGBTQ plus lens. I mean, it's a very different island that way. But he was getting some threats for participating in this campaign. Like he was one of the people pictured the whole bit. And he realized, I do not want my boys to grow up in such a toxic masculinity environment. So he purposely came to Canada, purposely enrolled his sons um, in the Afrocentric school. He and his wife homeschooled them as well. They're incredible, incredible um, young men who have a very strong um, identity, especially around blackness and acceptance. And he often advocates for LGBTQ plus peoples. But what I find fascinating, and he, he, he'll say this, and I mean, call it racist, but he's like, I'm not talking to white peoples. I'm not talking to non-white peoples. I'm talking to black, other black straight peoples, especially other black cis straight men about issues of transphobia, homophobia or whatever. And as it relates to other black trans or queer peoples. And I find that kind of interesting because I was on the first, for me at least, straight black man who's like, he knew more about these issues than I did back then. And I was just impressed that he was doing this because I remember he was asked similar to this on a podcast. And he asked me my perspective. He came to me and said, hey, as a black gay man, I'd like to just run some of my ideas and my talking points by you, understanding that I'm talking to other black people when it comes to this. And I find in the ACB communities, as I said earlier, it is difficult to have this discussion. I. I, I, I'm not going to deny the homophobia, the transphobia, frankly, the ignorance that is there. I know that's there, um, which is a struggle for me. Like it's a huge, it's been a huge struggle for me at the, in the past. And where I'm going with this, um, in my very long-winded way, is I, I often think, as everyone's sort of, I guess, dumping on Dave Chappelle. Personally, I think some good came out of it in the black in black communities, at least in my from my perspective. I think. It opened a dialogue. 
Well, I think that I was just going to say like, that's so valid anytime, like you open a dialogue that is intentional around, like, let's, you know, unpack this. Um, it's, it, it's positive. That's super important. I, I just know, like, I think when I watched the special um, and I watched it with my son and for me, like just from my own perspective, and this is totally like a white cis mom perspective though. Like, I think I kind of went into it and thought, not even thinking of of Dave Chappelle from being a person of color, but um, if they were such good friends with this trans woman, and um, you know they're doing this at a time where they're not there anymore because a trans person has taken their own life, um, what happened? Like I, I just I, as a mother, I started to wonder. Okay, so they went online and defended Dave Chappelle. They were attacked by the trans community. They were shunned by their own community, and then somewhere in between there, they took their own life. I just wondered where was Dave Chappelle? Like he's famous, he's busy, he's on the road. Was he there for her? Did he connect? And I just was wondering all of that in such a in turmoil. Going, did he dump her? Or like was it a piece of like creating this funny bit? And then like where was he on the night before or when? And I don't know. And I like maybe yeah. he was, and I can't speak to that. But I think that's what really upset me the most is that she wasn't there anymore to be able to actually, even though he said she would love this joke, she would really enjoy it, mm. but it's like, but she's not here anymore. So something failed along there because she's gone. And yep. that I think broke my heart a little bit for sure from it, you know? Um, but yeah, you know, I think, and that's why dialogue is so important. Let's talk about, let's, let's, let's talk about those intersections and, um, you know, and, and reflect on it. I mean, again, from my perspective, I mean, I think, again, I think of ACB communities. I mean, I'm going to be quite blunt. When I first came out, I honestly believe this. You're probably going to laugh. I did not think Black people could be gay. And I thought I was an anomaly because I don't see, like, we don't, number one, it's not talked about at all. Not at all. It's just, and when I was why coming. Why is that? I don't mean to interrupt you, but, but why do you think that is? Could we just, like, dive into homophobia. that a little bit? Like, why do you? Homophobia. Um, I was a couple of for me personally, a couple of reasons. Um, I'm going down a different path here, but I think religion speaks to it. I know I personally, I grew up in a very, very religious family. And according to the Bible, it's even though it's not in the Bible, but according to the Bible, it's it's wrong. And man shall not sleep with man, woman shall not sleep with woman or what have you. And it kind of annoys me when I hear a lot of there are a lot of black folk. I'm probably going to get a lot of slack for what I'm about to say. Um, but I, I just kind of get a little annoyed when I hear a lot of black people go on about the Bible and God. I mean, I'm more spiritual. Um, I personally have issues with um, organized religion. I mean, I grew up in the United Faith. I actually left the United Church when I was a teenager. Interestingly, not because of homophobia or transphobia, but because of racism. The church I grew up in was one-third black, one-third white, one-third Korean. Our minister was quite young at the time. Well, like I was a teenager, but he would have been in his mid thirties. And at one of the Caribbean, like all the black folk who got together for a fundraiser, did a you know, Caribbean dinner dance. Someone bought like their niece or someone who was like late twenties, early thirties. Two of them hit it off, started dating. Suddenly the white people were like, oh, this can't happen. Interracial marriages are wrong and interracial couples are wrong. <coughs> Excuse me. The N word got thrown around. So all the black folk, we all left. Like my mother was like, what's with these one day a week Christians? So we all left, all the black folk left the church. Korean folk were like, you know what? We're gonna just go start our own church. And that's when I lost, I wouldn't say lost my faith, but I lost 
respect for religion. And interestingly, it had nothing to do with my sexual orientation. And so to go back to answer your question directly, Cynthia, I suspect a lot of it does have to do with the Bible. At case in point, I will say this. So in my family, like my aunt in Bermuda, I love her to death. Um, she loves me, I know that, but she's very religious. And when gay marriage the first time was made legal and acceptable in Bermuda, and again, the church she was at at the time decided to adopt it, she switched churches and went to a church that wouldn't allow that. And it's interesting because I, you know, I see her, she hugs me, she loves me, I love her. In her mind, okay, you can be gay, just don't act on it or what have you, and I'll pray for you. And I know she prays for me all the time, and you know, thank you for that. Um, but I suspect it comes from religion. And that's the part I actually have a difficult piece for me, at least reconciling with, because frankly, it was religion that was used to keep oppressed, to keep black people oppressed. Religion was used to justify the enslavement of black peoples. Religion is still used to justify certain things. I mean, mm -hmm. so that's where I suspect it comes from, from the standpoint of um, the black experience. Again, I don't, I could be mistaken. Well, maybe um, that's the culture, because so if you're if you're a white person who's gay and still your family's in the church, maybe there was more of a like you've been shunned and you're out. But maybe there was more of a community to go to, um, like, whereas maybe it was a hard, harder or for the black community to, to where do I go? Do I go to the white community that might be like there's still yeah. racism and green there? That's there's a lot on the down low. I mean. Sorry, Cynthia, I cut you off. I apologize. No, no, no. No, you didn't at all. It's just as fascinating. No, but yeah, that's the thing. And I mean, it's, it is quite a complex issue from that standpoint. I mean, it still exists today. It's interesting because I look at when I'm in queer spaces, so I'm going to be blunt here. When I'm in a just advertised as generic general queer space, queer spaces are typically, you know, cis, gay, white men. Typically. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, forget trans, forget racialized, forget women, quite frankly. Um, usually that's the default. And so that's what I've experienced when you go out. And it's funny because I've noticed, like for me, for example, when I've dated other black men, actually, I remember that I remember the day that I realized I was out. I met some guy online to this day, I don't even know what he looks like, but he messaged me as like, hey, how's it going? You're kind of cute, blah, 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 blah. You know, do you want a date? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. I'd like to see a picture or something though, but like, let's chit chat. And then he asked me, all he said was, are you out? And that was the day I said, well, my family knows, my friends know. Um, at work, frankly, it's nobody's business because it what doesn't impact at that time, it didn't impact what I was doing for my work. However, if someone asks me at work, I'm not gonna lie about it anymore. And then I said, huh. And that was the day I remember realizing, yeah, I'm, I'm out. I guess I'm out, yeah, I hadn't realized that. And then he said to me, it's never gonna work. And I never heard from him again. Oh. And there are a lot of, black folks, I'm generalizing a bit here, I know, but I know there are a number of black folks who do suffer from internalized homophobia. And I know here in the city of Toronto, I've tapped it and there is a black queer culture. A lot of it, frankly, is quite underground. Like when I go to mainstream queer events, I will see other black folk there. But when I go to black queer events, suddenly it balloons and I'll see the out and proud black queer folk. But then there's also this whole group that they're not necessarily out and proud. Um, when I say that is in, they, they'll go to black queer events, but they won't go to mainstream queer events. And I'm sure there are various reasons there in terms of I don't want to deal with And it's funny because I'm starting to come to grips with that myself, is that I don't want to deal with the racism. Or in some cases, it could be I don't really want to be that out publicly or what have you. Um, I suspect it might be more the former now because I'm starting to 
get into that headspace myself now in terms of taking up space, so to speak, in areas where you do feel comfortable, where you can just be yourself and it's, you don't, you know, having to, you know, justify your existence as a black person or justify your existence as a queer person. What would then in your experience, like what would your message be to say cis folks that are listening, um, cis white folks that are listening, how can they do better about being cognizant around being inclusive, but not just around, you know, race, but also gender identity and expression and sexual orientation? Um, ultimately, I mean, I, I, I'm still, for number one, we're all learning. I'm still learning myself. Um, I'm still learning a lot. Um, I, I guess for me, it's just, I think of people, human beings. I mean, like, let's just put it down to the basics. Like, whether you're cis, whether you're trans, whether you're black, whether you're Asian, whether you're white, whether you're what have you, whether you're non-binary, at the end of the day, we want to eat, we want to sleep. We want to exercise. Well, some of us, not me all the time, but I should be exercising more. But, you know, we raise our kids. We go to work. We go to school. We live. Like, just, we're people. We're humans. Like, that's, at the end of the day, I mean, it's sort of like, we just want to live our lives. So what if I choose to have my pronouns as they, them? Or, you know, I didn't identify as the gender that was assigned to me. I mean... You know, if you're not out there killing babies, you're not out there committing these horrific crimes, like, let people live. I don't know how else to put it. And that's the part that actually does time, especially around gender, um, non-binary, sorry, um, issues. It's sort of like, if someone wants to be called this pronoun, call them this pronoun. And I mean, I do get it from a black lens. There's the whole they, them. And when you look at it from a Caribbean lens, culturally, you know, a lot of times like, oh, those people are they and what have you. Culturally, that has been it's considered derogatory. So I do can appreciate, like, again, I'm looking for a Caribbean lens here. I, I can appreciate how there are some black folk from a Caribbean descent who might have to wrap their heads around the concept of they, them, because culturally it's often, if I'm referring, if I'm saying, if I'm speaking to Isaac about you, Cynthia, and I don't like you, I may be like, oh, you know, that Cynthia person or them, you know what they're like or what have you. It's actually considered derogatory. And I'm not necessarily speaking about a non, from a non-binary perspective. Um, but again, as I said, we're, we're, at the end of the day, we're just still human beings. We want to live our lives. Like, what's so wrong with that? Like, let people live their lives. Yeah. And to your, to your last point there, like, it's kind of similar to, like, the English variation of, like, it. And, like, some right. people use it as, like, a pronoun, which is totally valid. But typically in the English language, we're used to being, like, it is to refer to something I, I don't know if I would consider it derogatory but definitely insensitive yeah. um and there's a lot I, I find especially with um non-binary people the most internal dialogue and the kind of difficulties around I'll say non-binaryism is the difficulties with language and there's so many cultural implications that are, follow along with that there's so many societal implications with that so every kind of boxing all that up there's a lot to a lot to unpack but uh yes. yeah it, it's an, it's an important lens to look at though absolutely well kudos to the work that you're both doing with this podcast thank oh. you well uh, i learned too. a lot i'm learning a lot so i appreciate that well we're gonna have to do this again yes, no we appreciate we'd love to have you back
Ready. Create a great day. We'll break some eggs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to say that because I'm looking at your fabulous <laughs> sign behind you too. Oh, so thank you. We're huge egg lovers in our family anyway. So um, great. Well, thank you so much uh, for That's being on the show. all the time we have today, folks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hey Sis. The conversation doesn't have to stop here, though. If you would like to get in touch with us to ask us a question or share your story on a future episode, you can email us at connect at simplygoodform.com or visit us on our website at www.hasis.com. 